Hello, and welcome to Bachelor Therapy Hour. I'm Sarah. And I'm Joseph. And we are a pair of married mental health professionals hosting weekly therapy sessions to conceptualize all of the riveting interpersonal dynamics on each week's Bachelor franchise show. Welcome, and we are delighted to welcome a very special guest. Thank you for the drum roll. Um, <laughs> our dear friend and fellow clinical psychology doctoral student, Emily Ollis. Welcome, Emily. Ooh. Yay. Thank you, guys. I'm so excited to be on the show. Thanks for being here with us. Um, Emily, before we dive into all of the content that we have for this week, um, tell us a little bit about your clinical training and interests and your history with the Bachelor franchise. Yes, right now. <laughs> oh, yes. Okay. Well, clinical training and interest. Um, I uh, started out in the research world primarily where I was uh, trained in flexible adaptations of cognitive behavioral therapy in diverse and low-income settings. Um, really thought I wanted to be a full-time researcher until I did full-time research. And then I realized I really wanted to do clinical work. <laughs> um, so I made that transition. Um, but I think kind of my early, you know, experiences with CBT uh, have really stuck with me. So I'm primarily a cognitive behavioral therapist. Um, and then in the past year trained in dialectical behavior therapy, which has been fascinating, and I absolutely adore. Um, and so I've received specialized training in DBT for uh, borderline personality disorder. And then also now I am using it uh, in the treatment of eating disorders, especially anorexia. And then wow. in terms of history, with, yeah, thank you. In terms of history with The Bachelor, um, that one is actually really fun. I had never watched The Bachelor until um, about 2016. When I moved to Boston for my first job out of college, I didn't know anyone and was just having dinner alone in a bar one night right after I moved to town and struck up a conversation with some friends who were bold enough to invite uh, some weird random girl to their weekly bachelor <laughs> watch. And so uh, those friends, Lauren and Mark, became some of my best friends in Boston. And I watched several seasons of The Bachelor with them um, and they got me really into it and they, I think, are the only people I know who are on the same level as you in enthusiasm <laughs> for The Bachelor, Sarah. You know, The Bachelor is all about community. It's just bringing people together. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, a lot to The Bachelor. <laughs> Sarah, isn't your story very similar to that? That you get kind of like, <laughs> mm -hmm. some get invited to go over to some friend's place and... Now you're addicted. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Um, when I first moved to California, it was similar. I didn't really know many people. And um, uh, there were some girlfriends at work um, who I wasn't very close with at the time, but they did um, Monday night bachelor nights and they invited me to join. It became a tradition and then spawned a monster. And now here you are. <laughs> but it has been a great, I mean, since then, I've lived in a number of different places. And it's always been a way to formalize connections. Like, oh, do you like this too? Or have you given it a shot? Because it's kind of a um, something that has a routine to it. So it's like a built-in kind of activity. Um, and it feels comfortable to watch it, even if you're not very close. Um, 
or with people who you are really close with. Um, it's also just really fun to, to watch with them. So um, yeah, we've had plenty of different um, community building bachelor watch sessions <laughs> all over the country. Um, all right. So before we dive into the past two episodes, actually, so we took a brief hiatus um, for episode, I think, six. So we'll include that in tonight's episode. Um, we left everyone hanging leading into match week and we are overjoyed and shocked <laughs> and awed to uh, share that we all matched at um, sites that uh, are perfect for us, perfect fit. So um, we can all just kind of share what we'll be doing next year for our um, kind of final step in our doctorate, our equivalent of residency. Um, and we don't need to say which site it is unless we feel like it, but we can just kind of talk about what our next steps are to finish off our doctorates and what we're looking forward to. So Emily, would you like to start? Yeah. Um, so also thrilled and shocked and awed that I matched. <laughs> and I am going to be going to a VA hospital in Chicago um, where, you know, you still have to kind of match with a particular rotation. So it's not set in stone, but ideally I will be doing um, their comprehensive DBT program. So that exact interest I mentioned earlier, um, which is very exciting because it's very involved. Um, you do individual therapy, you do weekly group therapy, you do a consultation team with all of the other DBT therapists. So you're all sort of collaboratively working on these different cases, even though they work with just one individual uh, therapist. Um, and you do phone coaching. Um, and then I'll probably ideally also be doing uh, some PTSD work, uh, cognitive processing therapy and prolonged exposure therapy. Um, and then who knows what other rotations might make their way into the mix. That one's kind of up in the air. Awesome. Also, Chicago was the setting for season two of Love is Blind, which we might have to do a special bonus episode to, to analyze. Um, big bad visit me too. You might yeah, we can do it. <laughs> we can do it live on the ground in Chicago. <laughs> Wait, isn't grocery store Joe from Chicago? Yes, he is. Ooh, I'll nice. send you guys you little paparazzi pics. <laughs> <laughs> um, Joseph, what are you going to be up to? Um, so I matched at a community mental health agency um, that serves central Indiana, some of the uh, kind of a, um, rural areas outside, and um, I'll be doing just about everything there, I think. So um, get experience with, uh, you know, clients with a, a variety of problems and, and diagnoses and um, be doing individual therapy, group therapy, assessment work. So I'll be kind of doing it all as community mental health agencies do. Um, so. Well, our community is very lucky to have you. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and like Emily, I'll actually be at a VA um, medical center as well. And my primary rotations are serious mental illness and recovery. So using metacognitive therapy for individuals experiencing psychosis and schizophrenia spectrum disorders, um, among some other um, serious mental illnesses. And then um, also just general outpatient mental health care. 
And I'm also hoping to do a minor rotation in trauma recovery and um, another one TBD. I have a couple of choices I can't decide on yet. So um, I'm very excited to continue um, kind of down a, a specialization track in um, psychosis and SMI. Yeah. So, so we'll report back in about a year and a half or so and uh, see, see how things went. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully we we're just as hopefully we're just as chipper as we are now. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> we will see. Yes, yes. All the excitement's at an all-time high right now. <laughs> yes. So we might have to go back and in. listen to this podcast episode when <laughs> we're Days aren't going so well. Yeah. <laughs> Remember how optimistic we were? Um, yes, exactly. Okay. I'll stop interrupting. <laughs> okay. So when we left off two episodes ago, um, Shanae and Genevieve were embarking upon a two-on-one at Niagara Falls. Um, and I think we predicted that Shanae would not be coming back from that date. And the reign of terror under Shanae did, in <laughs> fact, get swept into the sea. <laughs> it was about time. <laughs> um, yeah, it feels like it's been a breath of fresh air to have Shanae out of the picture. But of course, when one villain exits, another emerges. So we have plenty of to talk about. Um, was anyone surprised by how that two-on-one played out? I would say I wasn't surprised. I think the only thing that was surprising was how Shanae, um, well, <laughs> said all that stuff about Genevieve and then Clayton actually believed her for, believed her <laughs> for a second there and then had to kind of confirm uh, what, what she was saying was true or not. So um, that was a little mm-hmm. kind of out of left field for me. But other than that, the result yeah. was still the same. Joseph, I have an important question for you. Are you an actor? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I couldn't believe that. So odd. I was going to say too, that was like the one thing that really stuck out to me was how bluntly he went about and clunkily he went about mm-hmm. trying to feel this out with Genevieve. And I feel like it was very similar um, in the more recent episode with Sarah um mm-hmm. and just something something is going on with how he's trying to piece out uh information from these women um not the most smooth way of opening some of these conversations <laughs> Emily I, I really like the I guess what we call it an adverb of clunkily I think that really describes Clayton very well <laughs> just kind of clunks yeah. around and tries to figure things out Yeah, (laughs) I think the one thing I can never stop thinking of when whenever he talks is the cops from Parks and Rec. Um, (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Every single time he talks, just allegedly we have a I can't even do it as well. But just the way he talks, you know, evidently, evidently, like, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's it's so formal and stilted and like he's doing a cross examination every time. (laughs) I've had some tips that. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So yeah, clunkily is, yeah, kind of how it's hitting me. (laughs) 
Yeah. Yeah. And we actually talked about that last episode, how Clayton kind of grasps that any like one-to-one kind of experiential connection mm-hmm. that he has. So if someone mentions something from their life, he's like, oh, that happened to me too. And that's his way of connecting, even when he hasn't actually had the same lived experience. And so it's actually kind of invalidating is what we talked about last episode. And mm-hmm. um and it seems that way too with his approach to um to the women, especially when there's conflict. He's like, Well, so and so said this. What do you say? <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like there's no nuance. He doesn't like take a, a beat to kind of think about <laughs> right to... how the context to... <laughs> or like the environment or any of the like different motivations people might have. He just kind of follows whatever the person that said to him most recently <laughs> tries to like work with that in the moment. <laughs> and then kind of just makes a bigger mess of it. Or his other coping mechanism is just walking away. Like whenever there's mm-hmm. something, he'll just get up and leave. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I just need a minute to step away and think about this. <laughs> See, I think Clayton kind of lacks a healthy skepticism. You know, mm-hmm. it just kind of takes everything face value. And it's like, like yeah, it. some things you should, uh, you should maybe be a little skeptical there. Right. <laughs> Well, especially as the show goes on and presumably some of these relationships are like growing and deepening, you know, I could see that being more of a thing week one or week two when you have barely met all these women, you don't know anyone, but, um, you know, if you've spent some time with somebody and you've gotten to know them and, you know, are envisioning a future with them and all these things, um, I imagine there'd be some, if somebody comes and says something really negative about them, about someone you care about, some dose of like, well, that doesn't sound like the person I've been getting to know. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's, I think, what was so frustrating about this with Shanae and Genevieve is him still taking at face value everything Shanae had said, despite yep. Yep. all of you know his experiences with Shanae. And it's like, yeah, he doesn't take into account anyone's character or what he knows about him or any of even his own personal experiences with those people it's very strange mm-hmm. um yeah <laughs> yeah it's like he gets caught up in like the kind of the all or nothing thinking that the person is kind of sharing with him and then he it kind of latches onto that and then he can't break mm-hmm. free right yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah i will say i'm i'm curious your guys read of just like Genevieve's body language throughout that date and particularly that conversation, because, um, you know, on the one hand, I, I, I think it was very clunky how Cl- Colton approached this. I think obviously Shanae yes, was Colton. pulling some weird <laughs> things, but um, at the same time, also Genevieve was, you know, I, I think, and it became even more clear in the psychoanalysis date, you know, she's uncomfortable. She's, mm-hmm. I think, not one to really put her emotions out there. I found her to be a little harder to read, you know, mm-hmm. so perhaps that level of um, knowing her enough to feel like, well, that doesn't sound like Genevieve was not there because she might have just been harder to read for him as well. Yeah, yeah, I could definitely see that. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I felt for Genevieve because she did seem kind of like collateral damage in a lot of this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I yeah. think perhaps he chose her for the two-on-one thinking 
here's someone who seems to be pretty stoic. She can survive like a conflict like this and won't be mm -hmm. so offended that she was put on the date or read it as there's no potential here. So obviously you wouldn't choose someone who he's really considering as, you know, his future mm -hmm. fiance to be on that date. But I guess you also don't want to choose someone who's just going to like back down and, um, and feel so overwhelmed by like hopelessness in the face of it that um, they don't engage. Like, I think they wanted someone who could kind of like hold their own with Shanae um, and perhaps that was like his read of her is like, as you were saying, like, it's difficult to read, but I think he maybe saw like a strength in her and felt like, oh, mm -hmm. she could survive this. Um, but ultimately I think, um, you know, when, he, when he was kind of like accusing her of these things, <laughs> I read in her body language, just like pure, like shock. And also yeah. I yes. was surprised by like her distress tolerance and like frustration tolerance because I felt like mm -hmm. in that moment I would have just been so overwhelmingly frustrated that I probably would have like emoted more obviously <laughs> you know like I probably yeah. would have like broken down crying or just felt so like hopeless or something or just angry that it would have been like you know what mm -hmm. I'm out of here and mm -hmm. so I respected that she like kept her composure but I wonder like how he interpreted that afterwards um mm -hmm. yeah yeah that's a good point because it was I, I feel like you know and I I, I want to be clear she was definitely the person who got the raw end of the deal in that but mm -hmm. it was almost like in that moment her level of shock that you're describing I feel like was sort of the most emotion that we as the audience saw out of her almost yeah the whole, at least remembering off the top of my head throughout the whole season and mm -hmm. um and it still was a very, yeah, stoic response, you know? And so, yeah, I don't know. It was just, it really struck me. It was a little, I felt really bad for her and felt like, gosh, this is just, doesn't strike me as a personality that um, is on the show because they're seeking attention at all. Yeah, it was interesting though, because there was the moment, I think the reason she, another reason maybe producers suggested her for the two-on-one is that we did see that conflict with her and Shanae when Shanae was lying at one of the mm -hmm. rose ceremony cocktail parties or something. And Gen Genevieve got really angry and kind of was yelling back at her. So I was That's surprised right. that like on the two-on-one, she was able to rein that in. Maybe she felt like um, her, like keeping her image in that moment was more important because Clayton wasn't actually there for that other argument. So maybe there mm -hmm. was some like environmental factor to that too, of like kind of letting herself getting, letting herself get like um, caught in the drama when it's just like the women around that when she like knows that they're like Clayton is there, she's able to kind of like control yeah. it better. I don't know. Um, but yeah, we did see that like spark out of her and, and then it kind of seemed to um dim a little bit here and then we'll obviously talk about her on the psychoanalysis yeah. tape <laughs> i mean when you're when you're facing elimination like that <laughs> you know i think you would try to put on your your best <laughs> be on your best behavior so i can see why um you know she didn't have the reaction maybe you would think she would have um like mm -hmm. you know kind of fighting back or getting in, a, in an argument with shanae which yeah, it would probably have hurt her, but I think Shanae still would have gone home. Yeah. 
it's such a useless accusation though because like okay if she is an actress which is a ridiculous thing like um <laughs> she's not gonna say yes or if she does say yes like okay so what what if that's her profession what has Clayton <laughs> even seen out of her that's like acting like if anything we were just saying like she's been not as emotive as other like women on the show and then of right. course if that's wrong you're just gonna be like what no you know <laughs> like, which I think is I was surprised she wasn't as like exasperated as I would have been I think yeah but either way someone's probably just going to deny it and then all you've done is kind of like slander her for no reason but I guess maybe mm -hmm. you should it was like a long game of like well I've planted this seed where he's not going to trust her um yeah and ultimately she did not last much longer in this case right fortunately um I think you're right with the planting the seed thing because as I think through like different ways she could have responded I don't think there's any sort of really convincing way to respond whether you say yes whether you say no whether you say what on earth do you mean you know it's just such a like absurd question that mm -hmm. <laughs> it puts the clunkily <laughs> question <laughs> yeah so she got put in I a do bad have to spot give, I do have to give Clayton credit finally of pushing back pushing through the halo effect you know mm. as I said before I think Shanae was the most attractive uh, woman left and he still was able to push through that and eliminate her mm -hmm. I think he finally also realize that if he kept her it would be at the expense of everybody else um yeah well uh shanae you know uh got a free uh little cruise there and sailed off into <laughs> a mist and we never saw her again <laughs> i'm Legends. sure <laughs> The legend says she's still on the boat there in Niagara Falls. <laughs> she left as mysteriously as she came. <laughs> <laughs> nice. She was not water fallen in love with Clayton. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> um, so as Shanae, you know, fades into the sunset, we get the rise of Mara as our next um rising kind of I don't want to call her a villain but kind of the person who's stirring the pot the most over the course of the next two episodes um would someone like to describe Mara <laughs> what are your impressions of her and kind of the the uh attack that she leads in the next two episodes <laughs> oh my god <laughs> I would just say a lot of her attacks just seem to come from a like a place of insecurity with her own age and going mm -hmm. after someone who, you know, on by number is the youngest. And yeah, she just really went <laughs> after that. I think it was just all from a place of her own, her own insecurity. Mm -hmm. She's got some strong facial expressions, I will say. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I think it's, you know, you're, you're put into this show where emotions are running really high and you're sleep deprived and you're drinking a lot. And, yeah. <laughs> like us right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
<laughs> and I imagine if you have any kind of insecurities about your age or your relationship status or any of those coming in, they're just going to be really, really amplified. Then mm-hmm. let alone, I, I imagine, you know, I, I guess I haven't really thought about it as hard until sort of now, like that it would feel really odd to be dating someone you know, who not only is dating a lot of other women at the same time, but is dating much younger women, which brings mm-hmm. out that insecurity in another way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it got played out in some really, really interesting ways. <laughs> yeah, it's just interesting that, I mean, it did play out that way, because, you know, someone can have an insecurity, but doesn't have to you know, doesn't have to come out in that way or someone doesn't have to have that reaction. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's just telling in a lot of ways. What's the um, psychodynamic defense name for that? When you're, is it is a projection when you're just, here's yeah. my insecurities, I'm putting that on other people. Projective identification. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. projective identification. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Like when you see something in yourself that you don't like, and so you don't recognize it in yourself, but you kind of project it onto others and attack it in other people. Um, yeah. Which, yeah. I guess is is interesting. Mara is very um, keenly aware of her age. She is, you know, approaching retirement age at age 32. <laughs> <laughs> She's basically in the AARP at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) I saw a gray hair in there, one or two. Did you say AARP? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Full disclosure, I have a lot of feelings about this because I will be 33 in like three days. Oh, yes. Insecurities. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So I'm initially like retired out of, aged out of bachelor contention. But but yeah, there are a couple of, I think, things that Mara really like fixates on um, as she kind of starts um, unraveling a little bit. One, I guess, is this idea that um, there needs to be some sort of like equity on this show, that like everything needs to be fair. And Mm -hmm. she is one of the Mm -hmm. only women who has not had time alone with him. And so that is unfair. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, that's just not how the show operates. It's not about everybody Mm -hmm. gets their fair shot. It's based on who Clayton is attracted to and has the best connection with. And so... I understand how frustrating that is of kind of like applying these standards that maybe you have from like other contexts in your life to be like, everyone should have, you know, it should be a meritocracy and everyone should have their like tryout and whoever auditions the best gets the role or something like that. But in this case, Mm -hmm. um, it's not like that. And I think admitting that would mean admitting to yourself that he is not as attracted Mm. to you or as into you. And so she's not able to really make that leap because that's too painful. And so instead she's fixated Mm. on this idea of like, this is unfair. And instead of like blaming Clayton or blaming the show, she blames Sarah Sarah because Sarah is the representation of that. She's the first one to get like the second one-on-one. And so then it creates Mm -hmm. this like adversarial relationship with Sarah when it's really not Sarah's fault. (laughs) Um, Yeah. 
Oh, well, as we found out, maybe a little bit, but. <laughs> <laughs> but it certainly wasn't Sarah's fault that she was selected for yeah. the one on one. Yeah. To begin exactly. this yeah. whole thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think the other thing is this equation of like physical age with maturity and readiness mm-hmm. for marriage. So Mara seems to yeah. think, well, because I'm the oldest one here, I'm the one who's most prepared for an engagement. Um, she was ready just... for an engagement on day one, remember? Yes, Which is she reminded us. I was sad, like, you're <laughs> just gonna marry any eligible person comes <laughs> your way regardless of, like, his personality, his goals, his values, yeah. anything. It's just, I'm of this age, and so whoever, like, crosses my path, I will <laughs> commit my life to him. Settle down with... <laughs> which is interesting because i do think sometimes you see the opposite reaction on this show where some of the older contestants will kind of say like i waited this long and i'm not going to settle Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. instead she's like i waited this long and therefore i deserve him (laughs) yeah i've held out and so i get the prize um Mm -hmm. and that's just getting loud everyone else (laughs) yeah that's just not how attraction works it's also not a good foundation mm-hmm. for a relationship <laughs> yeah um, it's just like i'm the oldest one here and therefore marry me um, yeah yeah calling dibs on the bachelor doesn't work <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah well, i think also i i definitely want to hear your thoughts on this um this kind of conflation of age with maturity readiness and as mara calls it being wifey material so she's <laughs> the wifey part just really stuck with me because oh you know, that's gosh. so grating that to me seemed really yes. immature like even that phrasing just seemed very much like a kid playing dress up to me of like i'm gonna be a wifey <laughs> so, mm-hmm. but um yeah yeah i'm curious what your thoughts are on that <laughs> i found it really grating as well and i and i agree it read to me as immature I think I think the other piece that contributed to me like I don't know just viewing her as maybe not as mature as she's trying to paint herself to be was um just like the level of engagement in kind of the drama with the other women versus right like mm-hmm. I, I think the thing that tends to read the most mature to me on the show if anybody reads is particularly mature you know is when folks are really more focused on like all right I'm here to figure out this relationship or not and and are able to kind of stay out of the drama you know yeah right right they're able to like compartmentalize a bit (laughs) yeah which you know on the one hand maybe we don't see that that much because it doesn't make for as good tv the folks that are just kind of staying in their lane um but yeah the fact that you know she's spending so much time upset about like not getting time with um with him and you know and then chooses to use her time to talk about other women versus just using that time for quality mm-hmm. time um mm-hmm. it, it felt to me like you know where's the kind of ordering of priorities sort of what you're saying is not matching up with what you're doing exactly yeah yeah she was like doing everything that made her look like actually not serious <laughs> about having a, mm-hmm. a, a marriage at the end at the end of it which is yeah really, it was all words and no action it seemed like yeah and it was interesting as we were saying that i just remembered we never actually talked about this but there was 
some foreshadowing to this conflict a couple episodes ago on the roast group date where we saw oh, this yeah. yeah this bizarre um conflict between mara and sarah which i remember watching it and being like wait so what's going on between these two yeah. <laughs> everyone else was yeah. kind of okay with each other but um mara essentially was calling um sarah kind of naive and immature and sarah was calling mara like old and desperate <laughs> and it, was, yeah. it was just very unflattering i think to both of them and, and spoke to Ooh. both kind of like people who are too kind of consumed by their comparing their relationships to the relationships that other women have with clayton or are getting kind of sucked into this like very competitive type of nature of like tit for tat who gets more time and if I get more time that means you get less time rather than as you said just having quality time for your relationship um mm-hmm. it yeah. seems like they pitted themselves as being like in competition with each other um yep. yeah which as an aside I know that was a few episodes ago but I could not st- Dan, that date, the setup of that date <laughs> made me made me so upset and so angry. And just like thinking about being in that position if I were on the show. Oh my gosh. I I don't know. I just I, I think it's so icky and mean spirited and just like we can't even pretend that it's funny to just try to set women up to tear each other down and then be like, oh my gosh, they're so funny. Like, yay, I love the movie with a sense of humor. And it's like, no, that's not funny. <laughs> this is just I mean, spirited. Some of the the roasts uh, towards Clayton were pretty funny. <laughs> the ones towards Clayton sometimes were, but the ones towards the other women, yeah. I think, were just mean spirited. And it was just so obvious mm-hmm. that it's that it's just propelling like bad blood between all of the contestants on the show. Oh, it made me so angry. I, I couldn't like sit back just kind of viewing it as the TV show. I was like really getting upset about it. <laughs> yeah, well, that actually leads to another kind of point of contention between Mara and Sarah. So this all comes to a head at a cocktail party. And this had, I just have to share, this had me screaming laughing <laughs> when Mara said it would behoove you <laughs> it just made me laugh so hard. I remember I screamed I thought it was so funny because you could tell Mara thought she was being like <laughs> like so intellectual or something Can't be was... she did scream <laughs> it was so funny to me um so she, Mara basically tells Sarah that she's getting sloppy by being confident in her connection with Clayton and that she should revert to having a quiet confidence. And Joseph, I want to address something that you said while we were watching it, which reminded me from Emily, what you were saying about pitting the women against each other. Um, in reaction to this, Joseph said, you know, I think a lot of times women um, are more kind of misogynistic toward each other than sometimes men are overtly Um, overtly yeah that women have kind of like internalized a lot of these beliefs Mm -hmm. of like what is appropriate you know feminine behavior what is is modesty mm -hmm. and like are more overt about some of those um Mm -hmm. ideas so yeah joseph what are your thoughts on that having watched that interaction i mean i think yeah that's spot on she was just kind of telling her like you know quiet down and you know, be kind of 
submissive and dainty and um yeah just kind of had a lot of a kind of a misogynistic kind of uh, tone to it pretty much I think even the full phrase was like go back to a cute quiet confidence mm -hmm. and that word cute felt really yeah. really condescending to me yeah I too yeah 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 Hmm. Yeah, I found it very, very condescending. The tone of it was, um, I mean, yeah, condescending is the best word. Very patronizing as well. Mm -hmm. Almost like pedantic as in like, I'm older, let me teach you something about how to, you know, successfully date, which again, is ironic, given that Mara is the one who really has no connection with Clayton. And this is all coming out of a, you know, coming from a place of envy, it seems like. Um, and as Emily, as you said, I, I, I don't think that like Mara, I don't know that this is like the best representation of her because I think the environment like pulls this from you, that it makes you really mm -hmm. insecure, it amplifies all of your insecurities, it, you know, makes you doubt yourself, it pits you against other people. And so like, obviously, this is not Mara in her most flattering light. Um, mm -hmm. But this moment I thought was really difficult to watch and so I think my reaction was just like uncomfortable like I can't believe I'm seeing this unfold and then I think what was so interesting about it was like I thought again Sarah handled it pretty well all things considered and the, I expected the other women to be like you know Sarah didn't start this in fact Mara kept saying that like she said that she didn't actually tell Clayton about anyone, but she did explicitly name Sarah and other women. We saw her do that. So she was lying about that. Um, mm. And then the other women were like, yeah, we see where Mara is coming from. Or like, so that was <laughs> super interesting to me to like watch that play out. And they all kind of sided with her. So I wonder if there is something about Sarah and that confidence that like pulls so much insecurity from the other women um, that's like really unnerving to them in some way. And they did tell Clayton when he started asking them, they were saying like, oh, we all almost gave up because we were so, she was so, you know, assured of your connection. So yeah, mm -hmm. I'm curious of what your reactions were to the other women's reactions to this conflict too, because that really surprised me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I felt, I felt really like, just in the way that it was presented by the show, it felt very out of left field to me. So it, it almost feels difficult to speak to it because I, I really liked Sarah up until that point. Mm -hmm. I actually, she was kind of a favorite of mine and I sort of believed their connection. I felt like, oh yeah, she, she seems solid. I don't know. Um, so I think because there was sort of enough women having that reaction, I sort of was inclined to be like, oh, there must be something going on behind mm -hmm. the scenes that we're not seeing. Um, I don't necessarily mm -hmm. think that Sarah was just being totally painted in the wrong, but I, I'm curious your guys thought, if it's really just the confidence thing of kind of maybe being kind of inconsiderate of rubbing her relationship in their faces or, you know, th that is an odd dynamic. You wouldn't want to be coming home and going, oh my gosh, it was so romantic. It was so wonderful. Let me tell you all about my date, the way that 
in the real world, girlfriends very often do with one another after a date, you know, it's Mm -hmm. maybe inconsiderate to do that if the girlfriends that you're gushing to are also dating the same man. (laughs) Which is not (laughs) common, but yes. Which is not common. (laughs) You know, unless you're the Tinder swindler. Yes, true. (laughs) Um, But I don't know. I, I, me that's like beyond that being inconsiderate I don't take issue with being like confident in your relationship necessarily yeah 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 I'm really glad you brought that up because I watching this felt like Sarah was put in an impossible position because if you're confident in your relationship and you share you know I feel like we have a great bond our dates are going really well etc then you're attacked for being overconfident and inconsiderate. But if you play it cool, then you're attacked for not taking it seriously enough, not being ready for mm-hmm. an engagement. Oh, this mm-hmm. person doesn't act, isn't really here for marriage, etc. So if you if the you right express reasons. any hesitation, you're attacked for that. But if you express any confidence, you're also attacked for that. So yeah. I actually believe Sarah. It's because it's got to be a cute, quiet confidence. That's why <laughs> you have to do it just right. You know? <laughs> well, you have to use impossible... your voice when you talk about it. <laughs> it's just like such an impossible position to be in, yeah. and such a delicate balance between, especially I think with Mara bringing up the age concerns so often. I would mm-hmm. think that maybe she's trying to compensate by that. For that by saying I am really serious about this I do see a future with him I'm not just mm-hmm. here to like have a good time yeah. and travel and then that is misinterpreted as being too yeah. overconfident and ostentatious and so I really felt for her because I felt like there was no way to really anything she would have done in the house I think because she was the first one to get the second one-on-one would have been like scapegoated in some way um mm-hmm. Yeah, but then we can talk about how later perhaps she does yeah. kind of like play into this victim role a little bit too mm-hmm. much, where it becomes yeah. like disingenuous at some point. Um, yeah, I found it interesting that the women kind of perceived it as like an, like Sarah attempting to like knock down their own confidence in their own you know in their relationship. So yeah, I wonder like how much truth that there is to that. Obviously we'll never know, but that was just an interesting mm-hmm. interpretation for me because um, mm-hmm. I, I can't recall it sounded like maybe there was more than one or two people that kind of saw it that way. And um yeah. I don't know. It's interesting that they were kind of perceiving it you know, a couple of people were perceiving it that way. It's like her trying to, you know, get people to start questioning their own right. their own status in the in the situation yeah i think gabby and rachel both referenced that in the yeah. mm-hmm. psychoanalysis date um it's kind of like yeah. in the sports you know you try to get in like the competitor's head and you know mm-hmm. so they can they yeah. don't, don't give up pretty much and um you know women even said that they were like we wanted to give up so it's like yeah was she trying to do that or maybe it's just how it's perceived Um, which it's interesting too with that because that's like such a more malicious and sort of like calculated interpretation of her behavior Mm -hmm. than she's just kind of inconsiderate and she's just you know it it almost it it strikes Mm -hmm. me as more believable if they if they do view her as like oh she's so immature she's so young she's you know the young immature one on the show like the interpretation of like oh this is just kind of inconsiderate she's just sort of 
love struck yeah. walking around the house. Oh, Clayton, Clayton, you know, that almost yeah. strikes me as more consistent with the immature mm-hmm. interpretation of her yeah. than this very like calculated cold. She's trying to get in our heads and tear us down interpretation. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah it's like, was she really that calculated? Hmm. But yeah, so I have immature. a hard time seeing that. Yeah, right, I, don't, right. I don't know. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who knows? I'm curious too. I, I think it was around there where we first started seeing Sarah in her confessionals have some of the more like biting reactions, especially to Mara, um, and sort of making some of the mean jokes back. Where I feel like we didn't really get any of that from her before, other than in the roast. Um, mm-hmm. And I know seeing that was the first time I felt like I started having a negative reaction to Sarah. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious if you guys had a similar reaction or. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, definitely did. Uh, definitely had a little bit of a, huh, maybe what they're saying, there is some truth to, the, to that, but um, <laughs> like she's been holding back or trying to, you know, when she's with Clayton acting a certain way. And then maybe when she's with the women, she's a little bit more calculated, but yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, I did kind of have that same reaction too. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I understood where it was coming from, though, because from her perspective, it's like all these people are attacking her suddenly and for no reason. Like Mara, Mm -hmm. again, we kind of talked about how like she picked her as a target just because she seems to be Mara's foil because Mara is insecure about her own age. And so she's fixated on everybody else's age. And Mm -hmm. so Mara or Sarah being the youngest and she being the oldest, that's the person who she chooses to kind of project all of her insecurities onto so I could see how for Sarah feeling like I'm here for the right reasons I have this connection you know etc everyone's attacking me for no reason my option is to just like lay down and take it or be like you know what well if we have that strong of a connection like we'll survive it like I, I kind of almost like respect a little bit of like the fight in it of yeah. Like, yeah you know what this mm-hmm. doesn't make sense like and I'm gonna stand up for what I want and you're not gonna yeah. just kind of like bully me out of here you know um there were some times where I felt like it was a little bit like vicious but I guess I understood like where it was coming from mm-hmm. yeah. yeah it actually like circling back to the you know thoughts of internalized misogyny I I found myself like really analyzing my reaction to that because I had this like really negative reaction to I think what was my perception of like, oh, Sarah, don't like stoop to their level mm. and be mean. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, but then I was like, well, I don't know. You know, I mean, I don't think you can let meanness off the hook, but also it, it makes more sense when it's defensive meanness, I guess, than just yeah. sort of out of yeah. the blue. And, you know, yeah. maybe maybe there's an element of, you know, to your point, my own internalized misogyny that looks negatively at the person being mean to unjustified attacks versus going, well, anybody would react defensively to unjustified yeah. attacks. So yeah, I really thought myself in circles on that one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's a really great point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because I think, yeah, seeing her kind of say those things, you have that visceral reaction of like, oh, that's, you know, that's impolite, that's icky, that's kind of mm-hmm. um, vicious. But then I think taking a step back to be like, well, would I react any differently if I were attacked? <laughs> <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. 
the only other option I would see is just to like become like really withdrawn and like pulled into myself and um and that would be really hard too um so kind of similar to what we were talking about with Genevieve like either you become really kind of hopeless and give up or you decide like I'm gonna fight back (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah um yeah So I guess that's a good segue into moving from Croatia to Austria. (laughs) A home of Freud. (laughs) Vienna, Austria, where Sigmund Freud famously practiced um, and, you know, developed psychoanalysis. (laughs) You know. know. (laughs) He did that thing, you know. You know, we owe him so much. <laughs> we would not be here without him. <laughs> Joseph, I okay. still very frequently drink out of my Freud mug. Um, that says, oh, when you that. say one thing, but me and your mother. <laughs> <laughs> I totally forgot about that mug. It's not to hear that. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, okay, so first of all, I just want to open with <laughs> when you think about psychoanalysis, traditional Freudian psychoanalysis, what comes to mind? Let's just start there. <laughs> Laying on the couch. <laughs> Couches, yeah. <laughs> so furniture. <laughs> glasses Um, things like free association and sort of I guess um, dream interpretation fantasies Mm mm-hmm Maybe the more like interpretive psychology. mm, Yeah, Yeah. Mm -hmm. therapist who really doesn't give you much other than interpretations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I almost (laughs) this is this is definitely my own like not not as a therapist but as like individual me Emily but almost more the therapy to be nervous about. Um. Whether, whether it's because it maybe goes deeper or is more interpretive or more, you know, op- open to the kind of interpretation versus maybe more like problem solving or straightforward or present focused therapies. Mm-hmm. More focused on the yeah. past. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so I guess I was curious about that because I think we'll dive into this depiction of psychoanalysis was quite unlike anything that I think we um, <laughs> we associate with traditional psychoanalysis or modern psychoanalysis or psychodynamic psychotherapy. So um, I just kind of wanted to lay that foundation there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I would call that psychoanalysis <laughs> at all. Mm-hmm. No. I would say... 
even from the resident like newbie in psychoanalysis and psychodynamic it is totally out of my area of training or expertise i was like this doesn't seem right <laughs> definitely not absolutely not um okay so before we dive into that while i refill my wine while we're talking um <laughs> wait are you coming over here yeah <laughs> i can just bring you the wine <laughs> okay thank you okay i would take a this refill is- as well <laughs> This the, is marriage. This is friendship. This is grad school. Everybody, the, wait. Are we? Are are you drinking the pessimist? Yeah, we are. Okay. We're drinking a a lovely red wine that Emily provided. That's called the pessimist. If anyone wants a good wine recommendation, that's also somewhat <laughs> therapy or mental health themed. <laughs> somewhat depressive in its uh, in its description. Um, Maybe representative of, like, Genevieve's mindset at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I'm curious, uh, Emily and Joseph, when you're back at your station. um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah! We're doing it live. Um, There we go. Thank you. Before we even dive into psychoanalysis as the... As the the purported uh, theoretical orientation that they're displaying, and we'll talk about that obviously. Um, how do you feel about, in general, therapy being depicted on reality TV, and kind of the the ethics of video recording um, therapy, regardless of the type of therapy? What are our thoughts on this? Well, I guess I have a strong opinion (laughs) when it comes to shows like The Bachelor where, um, you know, because I'm thinking about other shows that they depict therapy, like one that comes to mind is like Hoarders. Um, You know, know, some people say that these people are being exploited and, you know, using their suffering as entertainment. and I can see that uh, when it comes to hoarders, I'm thinking like some of these people may have not had the opportunity or the, the resources to get therapy. So I guess getting therapy, even though it's on camera, maybe outweighs no therapy at all. Right. But when it comes to The Bachelor, I don't know, I, I get the sense that the people on the show, that's not the case. They could probably get therapy outside of the show and have access and have the resources. And so to put to display this just seems like purely entertainment to me um, and kind of seems unnecessary and, and leaning more towards the unethical. Um, at least that's kind of my opinion. Mm-hmm. I think it's also an important distinction that you're making here between a show like Hoarders and a show like The Bachelor is hoarding is a specific type of disorder sure. in which yep. there needs to be like really intensive kind of wraparound services and in-home services, right? So it's not just going to a therapy office and talking about, so like what you see on the show is the psychologist coming into the home, involving Mm -hmm. the therapy or involving the family. Like it's a very kind of um, hopefully like all encompassing type like wraparound services. Um, And Mm -hmm. presumably the person seeking help is the one who initiated this rather than being forced into the therapy in that here's yep. the, you know, quote unquote challenge of the date. Um, yep. 
but I think Hoyer still has plenty of other issues with oh, it yeah, that we could talk sure. about. Like it's surely, you know, there are also other ethical um, mm-hmm. concerns that come up with that show as well. But I think thinking about too, like the context of the services and in terms of like the access point that you were talking about, it's not as simple as um, seeing someone once a week. And it's also not that in in the bachelor in this situation it is not client driven it's not someone saying i would like Mm -hmm. to um do couples therapy it is someone being told you must do couples therapy right now (laughs) Uh, (laughs) and and it seems like yeah they don't give them the option to opt out of a date like that right i mean it doesn't look like it (laughs) no not coming into it voluntarily for sure yeah that's a great point the other piece ethically that stuck out to me and that I find really interesting in our profession, and I presume, you know, similarly for, you know, other medical professionals, but, um, you know, in terms of our ethics, we have kind of like what I think of as like the legalistic ethics in terms of um, our note taking and making sure things are kosher on paper, you know, and I, I have no doubt that they could have all the women sign a release kind of get all the paperwork in order to where legally things are ethical you know but then we have as therapists this additional ethical piece to think of that's more the kind of hazy like we might be covered on paper but what about the ethics in terms of how our actions affect people's ability to engage with therapy or their attitudes towards Mm -hmm. engaging with therapy and and I think that speaks to the things you guys are talking about in terms of like legally you know the show has lawyers i'm sure that they were covered ethically in that sense but mm-hmm. you know i kind I of the, it, like, the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law exactly and i think about like you know particularly the piece that really stuck with me is all the apprehension that a lot of the women showed prior to entering mm-hmm. therapy <laughs> which there could have been a right of the show where that's really great and it normalizes that like yeah it can be really scary to go to therapy it can many people experience apprehension or fear or nervousness before going to therapy and then they go and they're able to put that at ease you know maybe they're not maybe they Mm -hmm. need to try it a few different therapists you know there's there's rights that you can do that include that in a productive way that normalizes that fear versus okay Um, you might be fearful before going into therapy and you might get broken up with on national TV immediately after because you can't be a good enough therapy client. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. The standpoint of like the messaging that it sent ethically to people who might be considering Mm -hmm. particularly couples therapy, um, I felt Mm -hmm. really, really uh, not great about. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I think... um, I do want to, for anyone who's listening, who's not as familiar with kind of the, even the legal end of things, maybe provide a bit of like brief psychoeducation and, and please like fill in where I'm um, missing anything. But um, one of the hallmarks of therapy is confidentiality, right? That's why it's kind of a safe space. It's a, a safe environment in which to process your thoughts and feelings and your memories and um, your emotions. And that is also, as Emily was saying, a legal requirement, right? So typically you sign paperwork saying that um, you understand that um, the therapy work is confidential outside of the service providing agency. So for example, you might work with a therapist who also 
um, consults with other people on your treatment team, but she is not going to share any details of a, the fact that you're even a patient there or your work outside of the agency. Um, and then of course there are a few notable exceptions. One is imminent risk to yourself or others. So that would be um, active suicidal ideation or homicidal ideation in which we can break confidentiality for someone's safety. Um, state by state, there are mandated reporting laws. So like in Indiana, we are mandated reporters for elder or child abuse. So you can break confidentiality for that. And then if there's a subpoena from the court for client's records, um, and I'm making that distinction because uh, someone's records can also be subpoenaed by a lawyer, but we don't have to comply with that. And that um, has come up recently in the news. So anyway, um, <laughs> so anyway, I, I, I guess just to say there, there's a legalistic side to this in terms of ensuring that the patient feels comfortable, that there is assured confidentiality um, for them and the records associated with their treatment. But um, there's also forms such as a release of information or an ROI, as we call it, so that someone can consent for their information to be released to other people with their express written um, agreement. So, for example, someone may want an ROI for their therapist to be able to talk to their partner or their therapist to be able to talk to a professor and advocate for accommodations on their behalf or whatever the case may be, but we can never do that without, um, without written consent. So all this to say, I think obviously they have the paperwork. I mean, what is the ROI for just like general the world? Just basically nothing is confidential. Exactly. Like I'm signing away my confidentiality, but I, I do think that that, as Emily was saying, can lead to some like icky feelings about therapy yep. of like, mm -hmm. um, oh, this is something that can be displayed to other people. It's something that um, where there is a performative aspect of being good or bad at therapy, which is obviously not true. Um, and um, so, yeah, you so don't always get dumped after therapy. <laughs> 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 and aren't we grateful I, I guess I can think of like two instances let's think about they're still in my brain anymore of like playing devil's advocate why um video recording therapy in some instances could be beneficial not necessarily in the case of this date because I do think this was um ethically gross but um, <laughs> one would be, I think, the stigma piece. So if somebody does consent to, let's say somebody has a reality show about themselves, like um, something where they are the center of the show rather than being forced into it, like on, you know, on this date where it's like the date is therapy, you have no choice. But on a show like, you know, we've talked about like Vanderpump Rules or some, or any type of like family show or show Kardashians. <laughs> exactly. If that person feels like they want to show that they go to therapy, I do think that can actually be powerful for people to see. Mm -hmm. um, oh, yeah. Because that can help destigmatize going to therapy, especially if that person is somebody who's well regarded by other people or has a following. That could increase maybe access and decrease stigma for people. 
And the other thought I had was obviously confidentiality is a primary ethical um, obligation and, and standard that we have, but another one is autonomy. And so I guess if we had a client who said, you know, I want to be on this show and I'd like my therapy to be a part of it, whether or not we think that's a good idea, we could talk about that. I could see an argument for honoring that client's autonomy and saying, this may not play out in the way that they think, but I'm honoring their dignity to make that decision for themselves. Um, mm -hmm. I still think I personally probably wouldn't agree to that because you don't have control over how things are going to be edited and spliced and manipulated in a way that could be more harmful than helpful. So on the therapist end yeah. of things, I would be pretty wary of signing away, you know? Um, yeah. I, don't know. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Just to play devil's advocate, I guess those are the only things I can come up with for why it might be okay from time to time. I mean, I definitely see the first piece that you're talking about. I really think that could really be beneficial to a lot of people. Like you said, if this person, it's on their, under their own volition, wants to show that they go to therapy, you know, to kind of, in a, maybe destigmatizes and, you know, puts it out there that therapy is, you know, something that's, you know, that they're doing and it's good to do. Uh, the other one, yeah, I, I can see that too. Um, but I guess just going back to it, in this case, the bachelor contestants did not have that. Um, exactly. Of those options. Mm -hmm. So um, for those reasons, um, yeah, just sticky. Um, yeah. You know, the state kind of reminds me of like other dates where they're kind of some, like some danger involved, like, bungee jumping or, you know, jumping out of a helicopter mm -hmm. or something. It's like, it had, it had that flavor to it. It's like, you shouldn't have that associated with therapy, you know? Right, <laughs> yeah. yeah. That That's shouldn't so. be something. I think it, it, it's interesting. I hadn't thought about this in relation to this date, but as you were talking about that, I was thinking, you know, yeah, it feels really icky because these women mm -hmm. were not given the choice to consent to therapy. And I think that's just ethically, that's a no-go. However, yeah, there are a lot of situations in which clients are mandated for mental health mm -hmm. treatment. And in that case, mm -hmm. we don't even think about consent. We think about assent, meaning yeah. they're basically kind of forced into it. Um, mm -hmm. So working with people who um, may be in a mental health court diversion program, for example, and are mandated to treatment, people who are on mental health commitment. There are lots of different mm -hmm situations mm -hmm. in which people don't really give full consent and are mandated to treatment and that is something that yeah. we are complicit in um and well, i yep, think there's you know, pros and cons to that <laughs> yeah mm -hmm. yeah yeah for sure um, i think yeah. all of us have experience working with those populations as well um of people mm -hmm. who don't necessarily want to be in treatment they wouldn't be in treatment if they have the choice right. Um, and it's interesting because yeah. it, it changes the dynamic quite a bit as the therapist mm -hmm. when you're working with someone who, or at least I found for me, it changes the dynamic a lot because um, just the pace of like what you're working on, sort of how quickly you're moving forward in things, um, how much you're sort of being directive versus non-directive, you know, mm -hmm. is all just very different depending on if the person chose to be there or not. Um, yeah. Yeah. And kind of, you know, going back to that question about, I, I'm thinking a lot about your point of addressing stigma, which I think is so important. And very optimistically, I think reality TV is a very cool 
vehicle to do that. But mm-hmm. I think maybe if I were to change something to try to make it a more ethical representation, I'm curious your thoughts. Um, I think one thing I would change is how much they showed the therapist themselves in sort of their, you know, later comments and reactions, because, mm-hmm. you know, at first I was like, I don't know that I necessarily if you're going to show like the content of someone's therapy sessions, you know, focusing more on the patient, their reactions, what they get out of it or don't get out of it. I think, Mm -hmm. you know, it's sort of, it's the patient's choice whether they want to share that with the world or not. But, you know, when it comes to showing the therapist, I I just think about it's such common advice that um, mental health professionals love to give to people seeking therapy for the first time is that you might have to find, you might have to, um, see a few different therapists to find the person who has that right fit feel. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And just because you're seeing somebody who is well-trained, well-qualified, has had experience with the particular issue you're dealing with might make them very qualified to be your therapist. But if the relationship fit just isn't there, um, it's mm-hmm. probably not going to be the best therapy fit, you know? Yep. And so in showing this particular therapist or any particular therapist work, you know, folks watching it might have a really strong reaction to a particular person that has nothing to do with whether therapy could be effective for them or not, but really just has to do, would they be a good fit with that particular therapist? You know, and, yep. and since so many people are likely having a strong reaction to this comment about performative um, later in the episode, you know, I think, I, I wonder if like removing the aspect of focusing on the therapists themselves might make it a little closer to an ethical representation of um, how therapy can be useful. Yeah. I think Emily, you're also kind of hitting on, on a point that, you know, what therapists because of their training and, and their, you know, their expertise, there comes some authority behind what they say. And, you know, there's people may be inclined to believe more about what they say is true. And so, you know, at the end of that day, you know, the, the psychoanalyst or whatever she is um, mm-hmm. saying, you know, there was people being performative, like Clayton's response and maybe even the people watching their responses. Oh yeah, there was like, this is actually what right. happened. And I, I even found myself being like, oh yeah, she's right. It's like, why did I mm-hmm. believe that? It's like, oh, because they present her as a psychoanalyst and this person who knows, Absolutely. you know, and yeah. everything she says is true. And it's like, yeah, I think you're right. Focusing more on, mm-hmm. on the client and what the, you know, the content of what's going on in the session, not so much the therapist's interpretations or, uh, you know, diagnostic impressions, um, you mm-hmm. know, that can be potentially problematic. And then in this case, to me, it was. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. so. Yeah. Also, you're, you, Joseph, just hit on something that I think is so important in terms of my reaction to this state, which is psychoanalysis compared to every other form of modern psychotherapy is about long-term exploration and yes. mining of your subconscious, of taking, I mean, meeting five times a week potentially for years to fully understand yourself. And the therapist, the psychoanalyst, is not making interpretations in the first session. They don't know you, right? Mm-hmm. In fact, even modern psychodynamic therapists take longer in their intake process. They take longer to try to understand the person before they're kind of providing those interpretations and um, even creating diagnostic impressions. They're really trying to get a full 
um, really comprehensive understanding of the person before trying to um, develop a conceptualization of them. And so to see the psychoanalyst make these snap judgments, um, this person is being performative, for example, it felt so inconsistent with actual psychoanalysis. And I think that's what was really frustrating to see too. It just felt like such a, um, a frustrating misrepresentation of what that type of therapy really is. Um, <laughs> so I was curious, like what your, your thoughts are on that. Um, Cause I thought that was really important to kind of point out too, is like her being representative as a psychoanalysist and Colt, or Colton Clayton and his, you know, various, uh, girlfriend being seen as the so in analysis there's the analyst and the analysand the person being analyzed um, <laughs> them being shout the out to Michael man. Jones hey. <laughs> <laughs> um, to see that being kind of um, summarized in these very kind of trite like um, snappy um, summaries of people just felt very wrong and the idea that the analysts would share those yep. judgments with the other women also felt again just even if these women consented to having their therapy um mm -hmm. you know filmed that still feels it still feels ethically even worse to have someone share her impressions with the mm -hmm. other women and have that be construed as like, and here's my kind of guidance to Clayton on who you should choose as your wife based on having met with each person for probably what, 20 yeah. minutes or something. Yeah. Um, that really kind of enraged me watching it. <laughs> yeah. And that actually, that specifically felt to me very, very inconsistent, even from sort of the legalistic end of how ROIs work um with with how this would happen in real life mm, you know I, I think yeah. about mm -hmm. I think about when I um do an ROI with a patient to share information with another medical professional you know the, mm -hmm. that paperwork is very specific about what is going to be shared you know it's not yep. just yep. like oh yep. yeah you yep. can tell you can tell the doctor whatever you want it's like mm -hmm. okay I'm going to talk to them about this particular issue and I'm going to share either yes session notes or you know this or that and so it's not just like you're writing away your whole yep. life when you share so mm -hmm. you know there's part of me that's like I mean I guess you know the women would see what's shared on the show once it airs on tv but to immediately walk out to the waiting room and tell a whole group of people <laughs> no yeah. longer confidential information is just it's really odd and yeah, and, right. yeah. Mm. Just yeah it was just say. like yeah it was just like everything therapy is was not represented well <laughs> in this mm -hmm. um aside from there being a couch and the <laughs> therapist you know patient ther therapist kind of role but the um, analyst you know, should be behind anyway it wasn't even the well, proper <laughs> Freudian whatever. setup <laughs> aside, from, aside from that though just like not respecting autonomy you know like mm -hmm. Not you know, no clients having literally no control of any aspect of the situation, right? Like, and yeah. Emily, you were just saying, like, even with an ROI, like, specific, like, information they have to give us, you know, mm -hmm. the right to do yeah. that. And there, they're just like, well, 
she was able to share everything she wanted pretty much. I mean, at the end, um, yeah. and really in reality, clients have so much more control and power and, and that's a good thing. Yeah. I think I had a really strong reaction to, to, so for anyone listening, who's a little bit lost, the psychoanalyst met with Clayton and each um, remaining contestant on this group date for what were construed as couples therapy sessions. And then afterwards, the analyst addressed the group and said, you know, thank you for sharing. Some of you shared your genuine emotions and some of you were being performative, right? So that's, I think, what we all like really took issue with. But the thing mm-hmm. is that I think it was really frustrating about um, how therapy was being misconstrued is it's not necessarily, so of course we're saying the snap judgment of someone being performative is very difficult to make with out having any prior knowledge of this person. You don't have mm-hmm. any other experience of yep. what this person's emotions look like to be able to make the leap that this person is being performative. So that on its face is just jumping to conclusions, right? It's just kind of, um, it's short-sighted. It's, it's being kind of snappily judgmental in a way that is very inconsistent with psychoanalysis. Um, mm-hmm. The other piece though, I think is, in real therapy with a client with whom you have a strong therapeutic relationship and you have a rapport, sometimes in the course of that actual therapy, you might make a process comment like, I feel like you're trying to impress me right now. And I wonder what that's about. Like sometimes we do kind of notice like maybe the way that someone's emoting and what they're saying seems like inconsistent in some way based on your knowledge of the person over a long time and also having a strong enough relationship to talk about those Mm -hmm. things in the moment um, and to provide those process observations. So to me, I think, you know, I've had this situation before um, where we're saying like, you know, I feel as though you're trying to make me feel a certain way. Um, But that would happen within the dyad of the therapeutic relationship of the client and the therapist, mm-hmm. not me then going out to their friends and being like, I feel like your friend is trying to, you know, <laughs> what's this about? Do they have an agenda or something? It's more about like being able to get to the root of something of like, I wonder where mm-hmm. this impulse is coming from. Or I wonder, you know, yeah. do you feel a certain way or do you want me to feel a certain way? Or like what's going on in this moment? Yeah. Because something feels a little bit different. Um, mm-hmm. not about then you sharing that observation, not with them in the moment, holding on to it, and then using it as ammunition for other people. That's what felt so gross about it. It was like, yeah. you know, I think it would have been actually kind of interesting, again, taking away all the consent issues and everything, but to have <laughs> seen a session in which she gave that observation in the moment and seeing how mm-hmm. Sarah and Clayton reacted to that. Um, instead it just becomes this thing that like, is this like toxic fuel that creates all of this conflict. Um, and it becomes really gross because then it's like somebody quote unquote failed at therapy and that's not what it's about. Mm -hmm. And when somebody is like using impression management, for example, in a session, it's not that they're being bad at therapy. It's just that like something is going on that we should address. Like what is going on in this moment between us that is like leading to this dynamic it's not that you're not being good at therapy yeah yeah and part of the therapy (laughs) is addressing that so that was so frustrating to me 
I don't know. What were your thoughts? It's like from my interpersonal perspective that made me like <laughs> yeah. want to crawl yeah, I think out things would have felt <laughs> things would have felt less icky if she would have addressed it in the room mm-hmm. instead of like you said holding on to it and then just kind of throwing it out there to everybody. Um, so yeah, I think, I think it would have been interesting to see that. Well, and the other piece that was inconsistent with a process comment and that really bothered me was speaking in absolutes of mm-hmm. some people were genuine and some people yeah. were performative. Yes, absolutely. Versus nice. in a true process comment, you would say my experience of what's happening right now is that you're, mm-hmm. you know, X, Y, Z. Right. In um, this moment, it feels like this. Yeah. Which, you know, it doesn't matter how many years we work with a client or how well we get to know them. We cannot dictate their internal lived experiences. We can guess at those and we can approximate those and we can come to, you know, be able to predict those better as we get to know people better. But like we ultimately, any human can only speak to what's going on internally to them. And that's something I actually really love about process comments and process therapy because you know it it uses that vehicle of of your internal experience as the therapist to provide feedback to that client of hey this is how I experience you Mm -hmm. um which may you know provide you some useful information about how other people are experiencing you Mm -hmm. but that was information about yourself (laughs) as a person as a therapist right yeah right yeah but that's not not quite how she approached it yeah 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 you make a great point like really at the end of the day we all kind of fluctuate between being genuine and being performative right Mm -hmm. Uh, there's no such thing as being completely performative and genuine in in any given situation um Mm -hmm. yeah i think also what's so heartbreaking to me watching this is for genevieve for example we see her hesitancy about opening up and also who could blame her she was just on this two-on-one where she was accused of being an actress out of nowhere she probably knows that she doesn't have much of a connection what would be her motivation to be so forthcoming with a therapist um Mm -hmm. and that felt gross to me even just seeing her say like you know I've I tend to avoid sharing my emotions or it's uncomfortable for me. And that would be something that um, actually would be a good kind of presenting problem or thing to work on in therapy in a trusting Mm -hmm. confidential space where you have (laughs) the room to explore that. But instead she's forced into the situation. Of course she shuts down naturally as one would, you know, being forced to Mm -hmm. open up when you feel like you're, being, you know, manipulated and you don't have a trusting relationship with either the therapist or the partner or Clayton. And then she's mm-hmm. dumped for it. And it was just heartbreaking to me because seeing her talk about it afterwards, I felt like this is someone who actually would benefit from real therapy. And is she's going to have such an aversive response to the suggestion of therapy, having this been her first experience of quote-unquote therapy that was not real therapy right yeah. mm-hmm. you know, who would go back to that yeah. after this experience that was really sad to me yeah. yeah i mean if they would have labeled it like 
as a as observation rather than therapy. They would have been a little mm. bit closer to what was actually happening there. <laughs> Just like her yeah. observing the dynamic between them and kind of commenting on it rather than actually being trying to work on something, right? Like an identified problem. There was no identified right. problem, right? It was just like, tell me about your relationship and then like mm -hmm. kind of making observations on what they share and how, you know, that's what it seemed mm -hmm. more like to me. Yeah. I also, I think, you know, that that sort of gets at another, um, something that challenges me about the show is I feel like across many seasons, there's been this huge emphasis on prizing vulnerability as like mm -hmm. the, the thing that moves you forward. <laughs> yeah. It's a buzzword. Yeah. Now. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's all about vulnerability. And, you know, especially as therapists, yes, we love vulnerability. That is something that allows us to connect with others. It's something that allows us to be more genuine. Um, you know, certainly not taking the stance against vulnerability, you know, and yet, um, like, vulnerability without any boundaries or without any thoughtfulness or, mm -hmm. you know, just sort of um, intentionality to it is not a good thing. Or being um, yeah, used against you. Yeah, <laughs> it can get used against yeah. you. And so... You know, I do, I, I feel like, to your point, like, yeah, Genevieve, there was nothing, there was no way that she stood to gain at that point to opening up and being vulnerable, especially considering that she's being aired on national TV, um, mm -hmm. if she were to do so. You know, she, I think she knew the relationship wasn't going anywhere. And so to, right. I, I almost even take issue with, um, or not take issue with, I, I almost even am like, I, I don't know that I would like pathologize her not opening up at yeah. that point because not who would, you know? Or, oh, I felt you know totally like what she did was completely relatable and what I would have done in that yes. situation. I would have been like, what's the point? You know what? I'm yeah. I think open up it was yeah. a perfectly, perfectly normal reaction to me. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and also and like so... to Emily's point, like vulnerability doesn't come as naturally to every person there right. needs to be boundaries to it and for some people vulnerability only comes after building a foundation of trust and for her to be thrust into this situation against her will yeah. and then asked to be vulnerable knowing that probably there's no good outcome other than that she feels exploited I mean mm -hmm. why would you open up I would probably do exactly what she did which is just kind of like right. clam up and you know kind of put your guard up mm -hmm. and that's what yeah. she did and that might have uh -huh. been very protective for her in that moment and kind of, you know, to use a DBT term, coming from her wise mind of what is going to be the best for her well-being in that moment in the long term. Mm -hmm. yep. mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, speaking of the psychoanalyst, I looked up who this person is and her name is... Oh. Catherine Rippenberg, Rippensburg, because um, mm. I found a couple of articles with her name from, you know, referenced in articles about the date. Oh. However, when I search her name outside of these articles, I cannot find anything. So <laughs> I'm starting to question whether she is truly a psychoanalyst. And actually, what is she like? Is she even a mental health professional? So, <laughs> if anyone else listening or YouTube, <laughs> I cannot find anything on her. If you type in yeah. Catherine Rippensberg, 
Yeah, I was actually going to ask that same question because I didn't Google her myself, but I heard another Bachelor Therapy Recap podcast come up against the same issue that they were wondering, is she is she an actress or is she a real psychoanalyst? <laughs> Wait, there are other Bachelor Therapy podcasts? No. Or not Bachelor Therapy. <laughs> no, no, no. Bachelor, Bachelor Recap podcast. Oh, okay. You guys okay. are forging your own path in the Bachelor psychology <laughs> world. <laughs> I thought we cornered the market here. Um, <laughs> okay, so before we go out, because I, I know we could talk about this probably like for hours um, and there's plenty more to talk about and hopefully we'll continue to kind of come back to this idea. But um, let's talk about Sarah's blazing <laughs> exit. Um, so Sarah goes into the psychoanalysis state pretty excited because she... <laughs> was saying Yay, that therapy. She, yeah she loves therapy she used therapy as a tool and obviously I mean uh I mean that's great like we're not gonna say anything negative about that um but she there was this tone of like I'm good at therapy um and so we, we can maybe talk about that um she was accused by the psychoanalyst so we understand or that's how they interpreted it as being performative so the analyst said somebody was being performative. It was interpreted to mean um, Sarah. And then when Clayton asked the other women about it, they all kind of threw her under the bus. And when he confronted her about it, she made a crying face, but there were no tears <laughs> that emerged from her eyeball. <laughs> was the psychoanalyst and slash actor right? <laughs> and Clayton made his only decisive decision of the season to send her home because he didn't believe her. So reacting to all of that whole arc, because this also struck me, I mean, it kind of took me by surprise how kind of like quickly this arc happened where Sarah kind of came out, like was a victim and then suddenly was a villain and then suddenly was you know, escorted out. I felt like it all happened <laughs> very quickly. Yes. Well, 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 to quickly go back, I found a Reddit uh, thread on R, The Bachelor, um, and people are talking about how they all try to find this Catherine Rippensburg, and there's nothing on her, too. So um, I'm starting to really question if she... Ooh. Yeah. Someone said, I put the closed captions on so I could Google her to see if she's a real psychoanalyst. The closed caption said, Catherine Rippensburg... Not sure how accurate it was because I couldn't find anything on her and I tried really hard. I also tried really hard mm. for five minutes. I couldn't find anything. So I'm leaning <laughs> towards more of she's an actor. Wow. Well, that leads to a whole other ethical <laughs> situation of just like a, a egregious misrepresentation of the beautiful tradition of psychoanalysis. I feel like. <laughs> or someone representing themselves as the therapist when they're actually not. Oh my gosh. The I very optimistic interpretation. Yeah, really. <laughs> very optimistically, I'm like, maybe this solves all of the ethical issues because maybe. if she's not a therapist, she has no ethical code to follow. True. But they call her a psychoanalyst, which actually you can call yourself a psychoanalyst and not actually. So yeah, maybe yeah. Yeah, and now <laughs> <Maybe>. that yeah <laughs> definitely opens up a can of worms. <laughs> maybe yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> Oh my going goodness. back Indy. to oh go ahead go ahead 
I was going to say, going back to Sarah and going back, I think something that really stuck out to me was that last like performance, so to speak, of she had no tears left to cry, <laughs> um, was confronted by Clayton, put on this big crying, presumably show. Um, and this stuck out to me because if I can be um, move into the didactic role for just a second. So dialectical behavior therapy, which is the one that I have um, been training in, has sort of a child therapy called radically open dialectical behavior therapy or RODBT, um, which kind of came out of a need for a DBT-like program for folks who, instead of being under-regulated in their emotions, meaning they have very little ability to kind of control the ups mm -hmm. and downs of their emotions, and emotions are big and explosive and cause a lot of problems because they're big and explosive, Radically mm -hmm. Open DBT focuses on people who are what they call over-controlled. So they have such a hard time either getting in touch with and experiencing or perhaps displaying their emotions, that that's sort of what creates issues for them. Um, and RODBT identifies something called a don't hurt me response. And I think this was a beautiful example, potentially, mm. of a don't hurt me response, um, which they kind of talk about as being a method of social signaling, meaning something that people intentionally or unintentionally do to signal a message or a disguised demand to others. Um, in this case, don't hurt me. So this is kind of like when you think of people crying crocodile tears, um, yeah. which, mm -hmm. you know, very often when people have strong emotional reactions, this elicits empathy out of others. We feel bad for the person. We go, oh my gosh, like they're hurting. They're, you know, really struggling right now. But but sometimes you get that feeling of like, oh, this is fake. Like this feels sort of put on. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah. so kind of the the don't hurt me response, um, RODBT would say that the intention of this is to represent kind of hidden intentions or disguised demand. The demand being, mm -hmm. I'm too fragile to take whatever you're asking of me. Don't hurt me. Um, to block unwanted feedback. So if you're saying to someone, I think that you might be, you know, um, performative oh my gosh don't hurt me I can't handle it I don't want that feedback I can't take that feedback mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um or to secretly control others because you know it might be that if I show you how much your feedback hurts me you'll stop giving me that feedback um and so I was just I was really excited because this is a new therapy to me not one that I um am very well trained in yet but I was like ah I don't hurt me response yay I'm excited to see yeah. you in real time <laughs> yeah huh. I'm I'm curious what you guys think of that with the explanation. Yeah. If you feel like that matched up with what you saw, yeah, that I can definitely see that. Huh. It is interesting though, because on her one-on-one -on -one date, when she was confronted with the information from Mara saying like you're you may not be ready or something, she did have like a very strong emotional reaction, and she was you know. I mean, hysterically crying, but it was hard to tell if that was out of like coming from a place of anger or frustration or fear for the relationship or, or just like self-injury of like, that really hurts to hear that someone would think that of me. Like it was hard to kind of like identify like where that emotion was coming from. Mm -hmm. um, but 
yeah, it's, it's interesting to think of it um, in this context after she's been now like taking this like onslaught of abuse from all the other women leading up to this that it may be like I I don't have the like bandwidth to like take this feedback anymore um, and this is the response I think also like almost a learned response of like well when I cried last time he gave me the rose mm-hmm. and it worked and so I will repeat that again and hope that I get the same sympathy and this time it didn't work but she was like hoping she could kind of match that and get the same response out of him right um which I I don't say to be like manipulative I think it was probably subconscious but you know in that moment just kind of like having learned well when I was backed in this corner before you know here's how I responded and what and I you know the outcome was positive and so yeah maybe subconsciously that's what comes up again (laughs) But this time yeah. it didn't work. I don't yeah. know. Right. Just kind of thinking out loud. Yeah, I think you're. Um, oh, go ahead. No, no, no. Please go ahead, Joseph. I was just thinking, like, yeah, that makes sense. What you shared, Emily, uh, from that perspective, uh, you know, mm-hmm. kind of this more unconscious process. Whereas I'm thinking in comparison to Shanae, who, you know, right. cried and then after got interviewed and was like, right. ah, I did, I cried this time. Look at me. And it was like, that's mm-hmm. more conscious and, you know, <laughs> yeah, just more conscious. Uh, and yeah. Yeah. And that, that, that's interesting. And actually, cause I, I do have my notes here helping me on, you know, the don't hurt me response, but I think that 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 language that I used before of like the secretly control others, you know, certainly implies manipulation, which Mm -hmm. is not to say that people don't ever manipulate others. But, you know, this is a behavioral therapy that um, Mm -hmm. conceptualizes this. And so to your point, Sarah, you know, learned behaviorally learned responses, we don't um, strictly imply, you know, manipulation or intent. Um, most often when people cry, they get a caregiving response from their environment, which is extremely Mm -hmm. reinforcing and certainly will reinforce like to your point that that behavior might continue into the future. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and the the other piece that I think is really interesting about um, the theory behind this particular response, you know, is that it points out that it's really effective, not only because it gets caregiving, but because it's also really difficult to challenge the authenticity of it. It's really difficult for people to say, I don't believe you to someone who's crying to do exactly what Clayton did. And except say, Clayton. <laughs> except for him. He's the only one. He stands alone. Um, you know, but gosh, like I, I think yeah. of that, I think I would have a really hard time oh. if somebody's in front of me having a big display of emotion it, it would be really difficult to just say, I think you're putting mm-hmm. this on right now. Um, and I wonder if, another reason it's so effective. Yep. Yeah. I guess I wonder if Clayton hadn't had this series of experiences with Shanae, if he would have actually given Sarah maybe more grace or empathy in this moment. Because mm-hmm. I wonder if he's aware of the fact that he was so manipulated by Shanae and that everyone mm-hmm. kind of turned against him for that. But now he is a little bit more kind of discerning about, you know, those displays right. of emotion. <laughs> um, but I also do think it, there's still a level of like, who does he have the greatest connection with? I mean, Rachel, for mm-hmm. example, 
I find to be somewhat performative. She's always like whispering and like crying and whatnot. <laughs> but he is so like, you know, drawn into her that he finds right. that really genuine and he, you know, doesn't find mm -hmm. that problematic at all. And so, you know, I wonder if Rachel had fake cried, what would the outcome be? You know, it's just, there are so many factors, but yeah, I think right. um, the DBT perspective there is really helpful to understand mm -hmm. like where Sarah's yep. coming from and, um, mm -hmm. and how that response may have like, you know, just come out in that moment. Um, yeah, it's like mm -hmm. just almost automatic. Yeah. And I did really it's a learn for her response. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, in terms of like learned behavioral responses, it's hard to, as you said, like there's not much intent behind it. So I feel like right. being broken up with for that, that must be very confusing to the person. <laughs> like I really mm -hmm. felt for her that she probably felt just like really blindsided in that moment and not like really understanding like how yeah. this outcome like turned out this other way that she wasn't expecting. Um, so, mm -hmm. yeah. um, which actually yeah. I think if I can segue that into another point that I'm curious to hear your thoughts on um, offline, we were talking a little bit about um, Clayton's suggestibility, you know, <laughs> and the fact that, you know, maybe he was able to question the authenticity of her tears because he'd had a few experiences with them, but it also might've been because he was kind of hearing like all these other women mm -hmm. questioning it and, and takes that at such face value that, um, mm -hmm. that all of a sudden he did question this woman that had really been a front runner for him. And yeah, yeah I don't know. And even when you he hear from an expert, like a psychoanalyst, right. <laughs> that might've yeah. pushed him over the edge there. Who knows? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's an interesting point too, um, Joseph, that you raised about like the, the power differential. And that's something that we always have to be um conscious of as therapists that like even in moments when we might not think that we're directive or that we're being directive clients may come back and say oh well you told me to do this so I did it and you, you may feel like I never said that <laughs> I didn't tell you to do that maybe I was mm -hmm. just trying to like throw out ideas or something and we always have to be aware that like we're in a position where people may um may feel as though what we're saying is prescriptive or that they um that we have some authority or something like that and I, I think that's really important to be aware of of like the power that we hold in that like dyad mm -hmm. between us and the client um and that's an interesting point but um yeah I guess that going back to like Clayton and all the other women I do feel like Clayton as we said before, it's kind of clumsily bumbling through this process. And <laughs> I think if he gets the consensus from people that, you know, oh, this person is problematic. I feel like he's just very attuned to whatever is like the latest, you know, uh, kind of murmur in his ear. And so he'll, he'll follow mm -hmm. that. And so maybe if he hadn't had that, like, <laughs> you know, if he hadn't been predisposed to like look for that, that issue with authenticity with Sarah, he may not have seen it. Um, but yeah. 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 Um, I remember it really stuck out to me for some reason that I, I'm pretty sure that 
in that scene where the analyst um, described was talking to the women and, and described Sarah as performative. I think he actually <laughs> referred to her as the doctor. Um, mm-hmm. I might be wrong, but but it kind of caught my ear mm-hmm. only because you know, in in my experience, at least so many of the psychologists we work with, although, you know, have the title of doctor, you know, when speaking with patients say, oh, call me, you know, by my first name or or this Mm -hmm. or that and use a more informal title. I think Mm -hmm. because they're trying to get rid of that power differential as much as is possible. I don't, other than like in professional conferences or professional settings, I think many therapists choose not to go by doctor. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it, it kind of, I thought it was interesting that he actually specifically chose to refer to her as that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of that, I, in my five minute uh, research, uh, in the <laughs> articles that I found, she, she is described as Dr. Catherine Rippenberg. So they also call it oh. Dr. So I'm not sure if they're just basing it on what he said in the show, because there is no evidence that this person exists. so but yes definitely a lot of power comes with that title Mm -hmm. yeah all right well i know we've been talking for quite a while let's just chime in really quickly on what are our predictions for the rest of the season i for one was pretty blindsided by teddy going home before hometowns i thought she would be in the top four or so um, mm-hmm. So we have left Gabby, Serene, Rachel, and Susie. Um, what are our thoughts? I think Gabby, Rachel, and Susie are going to hometowns. Well, they're all going to hometown. <laughs> Who's oh, sorry. They're going on next. <laughs> going on next. Sorry. There we go. They're going to forgo their Serene's... individual rooms and use the <laughs> yes. <key> disc. <laughs> I think Serene's going to be eliminated. Mm. I think so, too. Hmm. I think the only one I feel very strongly about moving forward is Susie. And I'm trying to decide mm-hmm. if that's just, like, recency effect of, of the whole dress state. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. But I don't know. I think woman in red. Um, the woman in red. <laughs> I think <laughs> that was a very funny date. Um, wow! I wish we could have a whole other podcast to talk about. That one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think Susie. Um, I think that uh, I think she has a pageant background, if I remember correctly. And mm-hmm. I think, um, there's something about the air that see the many of the women who've been in pageants seem to have that, um, I think is just a good match for Clayton and kind of what he's looking for and seems to be attracted to. Yeah, I agree. I feel like in my gut, I feel like the top two are Susie and Rachel, Yeah, but mm-hmm. I'm kind of torn on who goes home next. I mm-hmm. feel like Gabby and Serene are both people who I think in their own way are absolutely enchanting and like wonderful mm-hmm. women. The thing is, weirdly, I don't really see the chemistry with either of them, but he seems yeah. to be saying that he's really into them. So that's why I'm kind of confused. Like I can't really make out where mm-hmm. he stands on them. It seems like with Serene, 
Um, he does have this kind of like romantic relationship. They've expressed a lot of affection for each other. He chose her for a second one-on-one. Um, so I didn't see that relationship going that far. Um, with Gabby, they have this really goofy, easygoing dynamic. So I can see why she made it really far that she might be kind of like a breath of fresh air with all this drama. And so, you know, you would kind mm-hmm. of keep making it through. But so I could see her being the next one to get cut because she seems less like serious or something or they haven't expressed their like right. feelings for each other as explicitly as some of the other couples um is she but... falling for him yet <laughs> right exactly where is she in the in the falling process <laughs> she's starting to fall she's starting to think about falling she may be falling maybe thinking falling. <laughs> she may have exactly. started to fall but she's not quite all the way there <laughs> she's still Um, out of balance (laughs) so we'll see um Mm -hmm. but i think beyond like next week i will be shocked regardless of what happens just because um it's hard to tell how he feels and we were also talking offline about how all of clayton's breakups are so unemotional (laughs) like yeah bye which just based on the previews we've had so far um showing that he's gonna reveal that he has fallen in love with three women and was in love Mm -hmm. i think previously with a fourth one doesn't only four left so we know he's in love with all of them them. and i think you know we have to see what happens but my gut reaction to that preview has been oh goodness like he does he, he's not very clear on what being in love feels like you know because mm-hmm. my my yeah. own bias suggests that that's probably not possible um <laughs> <laughs> although who knows but we'll find uh, out i guess yeah. we'll find out but i i feel like the unemotional goodbyes do align with that to me because i think if you're truly in love with with someone or falling in love with someone it would be harder to say goodbye Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do wish I feel like one of the things that has been frustrating about this season, which altogether, I think has been a delightfully entertaining season, um, <laughs> has been how little we know about Clayton's like dating history. Like he mentioned, I think to Serene for the first time, like last episode that he had a kind of long term girlfriend, but we didn't really learn anything about what their relationship looked like, why they broke up, what his dating life has been like since then. All of these things that I feel like on the one-on-ones, we expect the women to share, oh, I, you know, I've never been in love or I have been in love or I was with someone for this many years and we grew apart for this Mm -hmm. reason or whatever. I feel like Clayton is this weird blank slate because he's told us nothing about like what his relationship is... to relationships is so it's very confusing <laughs> wait a minute is clayton a psychoanalyst <laughs> he's, just, he's, I mean, be, he's just a, way, a mirror he's, like, he's just like a blank whatever that everyone's a blank slate projects onto i actually i do think that is part of like the dynamic with women who keep saying they have chemistry that we don't see that clayton is just so agreeable that they project things onto onto him um so anyway, are we ready to wrap up for tonight, this week? Um, all right. So thank you all for sticking with us in this long episode. Thank you so much, Emily, for joining us this week. Um, 
if you want to support the show, you can follow us on Spotify and you can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at, at batch therapy hour. We recently joined Twitter. So you can follow us there as well. And we'll be back next week to talk about hometowns. All right. Keep processing everyone. Thank you both so much for having me on. Mm-hmm. <laughs>